0: Welcome to the Classroom in Your Living Room podcast. I am acting as your host. My name is Trisha Murphy, and I serve as the Development Director within the College of Education at MTSU. Now this is a a fun opportunity for us to connect with so many of our alumni and friends, and we know that so many of us are finding ourselves at home with children, juggling responsibilities, and yet still wanting to ensure that our students and our, our children are moving forward. here today with Dr. Kat Manjoni and she serves as an associate professor of elementary education here within the College of Education and she is a sweet dear friend of mine uh, since I have been here at MTSU and I am looking forward to talking about science today Dr. Manjoni. Good afternoon and thank you Trisha. When we did the Math at Home podcast, I confess very early on that that was the the most struggling discipline for Tricia Murphy. And here we are with the second most challenging discipline for me. And yet it's so fun. It is. Science is everywhere and science
1: should not be feared or avoided, but instead investigated.
0: And we have lots of opportunity for that at home. We do. And I am so looking forward to, as I think about summer with my little boy, what are these opportunities that we can take advantage of? And so let's go ahead and start with those two, three, four, and five-year-olds. What would you have us do at home this summer to learn some science skills?
1: The first thing that I want to call attention to would be, and I think I have been guilty of this myself as a parent, a lot of us think of science as a body of knowledge or science as a list of facts. And science is so much more than that. And so a lot of times parents and some teachers feel insecure about teaching science. We can't name all the galaxies or we don't know all of the elements. But I wanna remind parents that science is not only a body of knowledge, science is also a way of learning And a way of knowing about our environments. We don't have to know everything to guide our children in learning about their environments. So, in answer to your question about what can we do with early learners, say two, three, four, and five-year-olds, science is all around us, both in our homes and outside of our homes.
0: You know, as we look around our home this summer with those preschoolers or early childhood age groups, where is the best place to teach them science?
1: The best place to teach young children science is where they are. Children are natural scientists, even without input from adults, even without direction from adults. When children are playing with their trucks and their toys, they are predicting, making hypotheses and testing those. When you see a child in the bathtub, that child may have toys in the bathtub and those toys may be specifically purchased for bath time fun. Some of those toys may actually be empty shampoo bottles or empty uh, measuring cups. And so when students or when children have that opportunity to explore those things in the bathtub, they're actually constructing their knowledge about their environment? And specifically, one of the most ubiquitous science experiences or experiments in kindergarten is does it sink or does it float? And so in the bathtub, we can establish very quickly that certain things sink and certain things float. And we don't have to know why that is as a three-year-old or a five-year-old. But the more we do that, the more we realize that There are some commonalities between items that float and items that don't float, at which point we can begin uh, classifying these objects or these toys into it sinks or it doesn't. This is what we call science process skills. And so when we think about, when we we stop thinking about science as a discrete body of knowledge and we start thinking about science as a way to know and to learn about our environments, we use something called science process skills. And science process skills are a set of skills or abilities that can be transferred across content areas. Whether you're doing biology or astronomy or physical science, these are uh, skills that mirror how scientists think about and learn about our world.
0: I love that. And you know, what better time than now as we, uh, from Dr. Ridgely's conversation in the episode one, I believe, you know, she talked about playing doctor with, with these children and, and and I think Dr. Kasha even said, that's the way that we're going to teach folks about this, this coronavirus and why, why people are sick right now. And so I think that science is kind of all around us right now more than ever. So that's very helpful for that, that preschooler crowd. You and I were talking the other day and we talked about how even in laundry, a toddler or a preschooler can be learning about science. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh,
1: yes. Laundry. I think it's the bane of every adult's existence and perhaps even a curiosity for young children. But if we go back to those science process skills that I mentioned earlier, as an early childhood educator, we need to have activities that encourage children to use their observation skills their five senses, to classify or organize things. So having an opportunity to sort laundry gives children that grouping ability to classify objects based on a similarity or a difference in their
0: properties. Fantastic. That's so helpful. So when we start thinking about those elementary schoolers, how are we going to teach them science this summer?
1: I would have to say my favorite way to teach science in the summertime would either be outside through exploring uh, our natural environments. Tennessee has absolutely beautiful state parks. However, sometimes it's a little warm and it's better to stay inside. And on those days, I like to go to the kitchen. So, measurement is another one of those science process skills, one of those behaviors that we want to see in our young children that reflects the behaviors of scientists. Take for instance, the everyday, but highly regarded chocolate chip cookie. What is the best chocolate chip cookie? What is the recipe that is going to get us the best chocolate chip cookie? Well, the first thing we need to do as a family, if you can agree on this as a family, hats off. What is the best chocolate chip cookie? Personally, I prefer a thick, dense, chewy, almost cake-like chocolate chip cookie. However, there are other members in my family that prefer a thinner, crispier, browned edge, kind of like a brown butter almost, chocolate chip cookie. And so if we were to operationally define, again, another science skill that's really important for our kids to have, if we were to define what makes a great chocolate chip cookie, we would have to decide and come to a consensus as a family or as a group of culinary scientists, what is the ideal cookie that we're looking for? Then when we get into the kitchen, we'll take, say for instance, the Toll House recipe on the back of the chocolate chip container and say, oh, what happens if we begin to control for certain variables? So most chocolate chip cookies use white flour, What happens if we substitute whole wheat flour or we do a mix of that? Uh, Most chocolate chip cookies require both white sugar and brown sugar. We haven't made as many grocery store trips and so we have done make do cookies where we use 100% brown sugar. How does that impact the cookie that we're trying to make, that dream cookie that we're trying to reach? When a child starts to think about if I use 100% butter, this may happen. And then we try it, and then we document, and that is so important. Then try 100% vegetable shortening. Then try 50-50. What's the difference between those three batches of chocolate chip cookies? And how close are we getting to that dream chocolate chip cookie of what we want?
0: Man, that is fun. I I wish that that's what I was doing in high school and even in the classroom, which just brings us to the point that we keep going back to of Hey, you know, sometimes we're limited in what we can do in the classroom, but in the summertime or, or you know, in these months of quarantine, we've been able to kind of explore elements that we haven't previously been able to. So how fun and, and delicious, I might add. Well, I would love to add that the key here is
1: to document your findings so that you can replicate your results and of course the cookies.
0: So what do you what do you mean when you say document? Does that mean that I'm saying this is what we used, this is how much of it we've used, and this is what it tastes like?
1: That is precisely what I mean. So if we started with a basic recipe, perhaps the Toll House cookie recipe, did we make it the way it was indicated on the recipe? Yes. And then maybe even create some sort of guideline for evaluating what we liked and didn't like about that particular Toll House cookie. Then the next time we make cookies, document, okay, this is 100% butter, or this is 50% butter, 50% vegetable shortening, and document the results there so that when we've done several different trials of cookies, we know what we like.
0: Yes, that's right. Well, What about for those middle schoolers? You know, this is where I have seen for observation that the kid isn't necessarily wanting to be very close to you, maybe in the kitchen, or maybe they would rather be doing something far away from the parents (laughs) around this preteen age. But how can we still incorporate some of that individualism, some of that science experimentation? I would encourage
1: them in whatever they're interested in to pursue that topic. If you have a student or a child that is curious about bugs, my youngest daughter went through a period where she was totally amazed and curious about every type of insect or arachnid that she could lay her hands on. And so we saved every pickle jar, every baby food jar, so that she could collect all of these specimens and draw them and study them. And for a while there, she thought she was going to be an entomologist. If you have a child who is excited about astronomy, get them outside, give them 10, 15 minutes to look up at night. There are so many available resources online for star charts and there's apps you can download that will help you know exactly what you're looking at. Is that a star or is that a planet? Also, you know, I just had a conversation with a friend of mine about an activity regarding hand washing. So, her child was adamant that they didn't want to wash their hands as often because they wanted to use germ gel. They felt like germ gel was just as good as hand washing. And that is a great opportunity to encourage a student or a child to find out the answer on their own. So, the internet may say X, Y, and Z, but what can we learn at home? So, I shared a similar activity that we altered. Um, in my own science class about hand washing. Hand washing is super important. We learn how to do it as teachers so that we can teach our children. But how can you tell if the germs are still on your hands without a microscope or some sort of way to to look at that? And the answer is fairly easy. If you have a couple of Ziploc bags and a couple of slices of white bread (laughs) And I say white bread, it can be handmade or it can be uh, store-bought. The different bread molds will show up nicely on the white bread. Take a slice of bread, using tongs, place it in a Ziploc bag and seal it. And we're gonna call that our control. No one's touched it with their hands. Then take another piece of bread, handle it, pass it around the family, stick it in a Ziploc bag, mark the Ziploc bag, unwashed hands. Use some germex or some germ gel, pass a, a third piece of bread around, put it in a Ziploc bag, and label it germ gel. Then go wash your hands, singing the alphabet song, using soap and water, pass a sheet or pass a piece of bread around, stick it in a Ziploc bag, and write hand washing on it, and then wait. And in a couple of days document your findings. I encourage you if you do do this activity with your children at home, document When you see the first hint of mold on each different piece, because you will notice some of it will mold quicker than others. And some of it will take a very long time to mold and stick with it. Even though it starts to look kind of gross, if you stick with it for like three to five weeks, you will see some impressive mold samples on your bread.
0: Yes. And it doesn't seem right to say fascinated with washing our hands, but we're focusing on it now more than ever, that seems like a great experiment for us to be able to see over time the effects of those germs.
1: I believe so too. It's a, it's a good opportunity to have that conversation and also to give us a feeling like we have control over our environments. That hand washing is is truly one of the things that I think we can do to help slow the spread of COVID-19 and to feel like we have some control over things in our own lives.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. Well, as we think even more about those middle schoolers and high schoolers and how we might be able to further help them with their independence as well as their science skills this summer, what's something else that we can do?
1: I think we as parents often want to take care of our kids and so it's much easier for us to do laundry for our children, especially children with random stains. You know, my kids play outside so there's always grass stains or Sam loves to paint and so there's all sorts of art-related stains. But I think it's important to send our children to college knowing how to do their own laundry. And I also think that it's important to know how to eradicate stains from laundry because it saves on our wardrobe. We don't have to go out and buy a new shirt when we ruin it. So, another way to do that that just builds on that toddler classifying and sorting their laundry as a basic process skill, we can encourage our students of a middle school or high school age to find out what best removes different types of stains. What can we use? What do we have access to at home? So maybe I can scrub one knee with maybe some sort of abrasive, like lava soap. Maybe I can take the other knee and use hydrogen peroxide. Wash as we would usually wash and see which one of these spots seems to be faded the most. So having your students just kind of brainstorm and do a little bit of research about what is a possibility. I cut myself chopping an onion and there's a little bit of blood on the kitchen towel that I grabbed. How do I remove that? Well we could try anything in the house. We could use cold water, we could use club soda, we could use isopropyl alcohol, and we could use hydrogen peroxide. Which one works the most effectively? Which one works the quickest? And these are all things that your junior high or middle school student and your high school student can do, and it's learning that will last them forever. I'm fairly certain if they Googled stain removal, they could probably find a table of information that would indicate that perhaps club soda works best on this stain and chalk or baby powder works best on this type of stain. But I can tell you as a parent, as a teacher, as a science educator, nothing can replace constructing your own knowledge. And so when a child or a a mid-level student or a high school student realizes that OxyClean may or may not help, Mom, why do you buy all this OxyClean? I've done some experiments in the basement doing the family laundry this summer. These are things we can never take away from them. These are, this is learning that they will carry with them with their own children and their own families. So it can be very, very powerful.
0: Yes, that is powerful gosh. Well, you know, these are important life skills. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've talked about in almost every episode is that we want to teach in natural environments. And I think it's more lasting that way. I do. You know, I was the queen of the flashcards before an exam and memorizing it really well for maybe 48 hours, you know, then losing that knowledge. And so toward your point of saying, this is more solidified, it's going to be with them longer because they saw it, and they did it on their own.
1: Yes. It's something we can never take from them. They will always have
0: that knowledge, and they will reinforce it every time they do laundry. Yes. Well, I think that these are such good tips. You know, what would you say to the parent in our last few minutes here who who maybe is looking at us, Dr. Mangione, and kind of eye-rolling about, my kid is never going to do never going to get excited about science in the summer. What are some tips that you would say to to really help them engage that, that individual? Well, I just want to remind the parent, number one, we don't
1: have to know everything as the parent. In fact, it's better if we don't have a preconceived idea or notion about the way something's going to happen. Nothing shuts down learning faster than my child coming to me and saying, hey, I think if I use all this vegetable oil or vegetable shortening instead of butter, not only can I save some money, but the cookies will be better. And for me to reply, oh, I already did that. You're not going to be successful. Or I already know what gets grass stains out. There's no possible way that you could know this. And instead, allowing children to construct that knowledge themselves and to go through that process. So we don't have to know everything, and it's better for our students and our children that we discover alongside with them. I think the most important thing we can do is to model critical thinking, and I think Dr. Winters talked a great deal about the importance of critical thinking in math, and this, of course, translates into science as well. As a parent, when I see a problem or when I have a question, if I model critical thinking and I model process skills or thinking and behaving like a scientist, oh, I'm out of yeast. Can I create my own? And how many days will it take to grow that? Or I don't have enough baking powder. Can I use soda instead? And if I do... Is it a get me by or is it a, "Mm, no, this was not palatable and we're never going to make biscuits this way again, but modeling that and being willing to take those risks. And I think lastly, and most importantly, is to give your child, regardless of their age, space and time to explore what's interesting to them. We can learn so much about science and about the way science happens and the way scientists work in just about every area of our lives. So when my youngest was going through her bug phase or my son was going through his Tesla coil phase, all I could do was stand back, give them the tools, maybe provide them with some copper wiring or some mason jars for their specimens and let them have at it. Science is everywhere, from the swimming pool in the backyard to the oak tree in the front yard, to the tulips that bloomed a couple of months ago, and to the black-eyed Susans that should be coming up here soon.
0: Yes, it's okay not to have all the answers it's okay to really slow walk this. Like what you were talking about with the toddlers and preschoolers with the bathtub, does it sink or does it float? We don't have to tell them everybody why it sinks or why it floats necessarily. It's just that observing at any level is, is helpful. It sounds like. definitely. Well, again, I am just blown away by our good faculty within the college of education and Dr. Mangione, I'm just so grateful for your time.
1: Well, Tricia, thank you so much for inviting me and for being patient with me. I have so
0: enjoyed our conversation this afternoon. Absolutely. I invite you all to stay in touch with us online through our social media platforms by phone and, of course, email. Um, all of my information is on the website and as well as in the resources portion of this podcast. I'd love to hear from you and hear how these tips helped. Um, again, this is Trisha Murphy, and you've been listening to the Classroom in Your Living Room podcast.